Why did you guys take mine away? Was mine that? What? We're doing a snake draft. What is? Yeah, so you're gonna get to go. That? So the first person oh, in the first round first goes and last in the second oh. round. Kind of balances well, out good. the yeah. fairness. Okay, I'm so glad. Yeah. I was feeling like I was gonna. It's how you pick a kickball team, right? Same thing. I don't pick kickball teams. <laughs> That's what makes it even harder that you picked such a you wasted your first pick because yeah. exactly you, you made such a lame pick that we'll not leave any of the good picks for you. That's fair. <laughs> that hurts. Don't put that at the beginning. to Freely Filtered, the irregularly irregular podcast that summarizes and discusses recent NFJC journal clubs. NFJC is the Twitter Nephrology Journal Club where nephrologists meet in social space to discuss the research and developments that are driving nephrology forward. This podcast is for educational and entertainment purposes only and is not intended to give medical advice. If you have questions about your health, we suggest that you talk with your doctor rather than take the advice from self-appointed randoms on a podcast. This podcast discusses off-label and unapproved medications. Hello, my name is Joel Talk, Kidney Boy on Twitter. Tonight we have Nayan. Hi everyone, my name is Nayan Aurora. I'm a nephrologist at the University of Washington. I tweet at Captain Chloride and I have no conflicts of interest here. Josh. Hi there, Josh Waitsman. I'm a nephrologist and scientist at Beth Israel Deaconess Medical Center in Boston. I tweeted Jay Waits, and if I have conflicts of interest, I'll let you know, but I don't think I have any for this episode. Sophia. Hi, I'm Sophia Ambrousseau, at Sophia Kidney on Twitter. I'm a clinician educator at the Denver VA and University of Colorado. No conflicts of interest. And Swapnil. Hey, I'm Swapnil Hiramat. I'm a nephrologist epidemiologist at the University of Ottawa in Canada. I tweet at H Swapnil. I don't think I have any conflicts, but if so, I will state them. Okay, and the way the, we announce this, I've never mentioned my conflicts of interest. And so I have conflicts of interest with many drug companies. If you go to pbfluids.com and click on the about, you can see the full list. AstraZeneca and uh, is the one that comes to mind since they make an SGLT2 inhibitor. But please invest. And we'll put, we'll put a link to that in the show notes. What are SGLT2 inhibitors? I don't know. Flozenators! Flozens! It's all Flozens nowadays! I actually probably <laughs> add, ought to add to that I also <laughs> consult for AstraZeneca, so... And now the truth comes out. Okay, so tonight, tonight, we are bringing back the draft. We've had a lot of success with the draft. We've done uh, clinical practice guidelines twice with the draft, and tonight we are going to be reviewing... Uh, Kidney Week. Kidney Week. ASN Kidney Week is back in person after a two-year hiatus. It was in Orlando, Florida, which was a, kind of a weird place to do it, I think. But I thought it was a great meeting, and we are going to be – we've built up a freely filtered draft board. We'll put the full draft board in the uh, in the show notes, and we're going to go around the horn. We have uh, – we played a one-on-one basketball game tournament to establish the draft order and uh sophia once again came out on top and she gets the first draft unless anybody has any opening comments that they'd like to make i'm giving this kidney week two kidneys up two kidneys up (laughs) 
one and a half for Orlando. Orlando, come on. That that was I I did <sighs> not like that setup. I think we need to make an agreement within our community. It should never go back to Orlando. I would not be opposed to that. But I will tell you that I liked the Hyatt Regency, which is where I stayed. I thought it was an outstanding hotel. I thought the restaurants in there were good. I liked the bars and I liked how close it was to the conference. And and I think this is an important aspect. It's a really big hotel and a lot of people got to stay there. Unlike at other ho- at other conferences where sometimes they have to spread people o- over a bunch of different ho- hotels, a lot of people uh, got to stay at uh a kidney week. And and yet but, Josh and I still didn't get to stay there and we're drenched in yep. sweat. Nate, Nate and I for were that roommates mile walk. about a mile away down a darkened road past a bunch of tractor trailers. <laughs> we can post a picture of our walk in the show notes. Uh, it was that was that was not two kidneys up of an experience. So while I normally love Airbnbs for the conference, this was not a winner. That was a personal choice, you guys. That wasn't. Yeah, a- that's what I want to know. That's what that, I want. That was know. a financial choice. Yeah, those right. Hyatt, the Hyatt did not disappoint in terms of very high cost. Mm-hmm. But uh, but that's the thing with the ASN, right? So you should book the day housing opens. You have to book, otherwise you're stuck. You should keep that on your calendar. As soon as you get the email from ASN, right that minute, go and book. Otherwise, you're yeah, it's it's not a hundred percent, and it pays dividends in a town. Like Orlando. Well, I told you how much my my taxi bike cost me, right? I got suckered into a taxi bike. We were going to walk somewhere. Yeah, Pedro and me, Uh we got suckered into a taxi bike. We got on and we ended up going a mile and a half and we paid $80 for this thing. Eight zero? (laughs) Yes. Wow. $80? Did they give you the bike? Did they give you the bike or did you? (laughs) Nope, that's all it was. You're talking about like like a bike rickshaw, like in India where it costs like... 30 cents to go across the country if you want to. Exactly. And it didn't feel very safe either. I mean, we were going over all sorts of things. We were going fast too. It was a bad decision. Two kidneys down. (laughs) That's a polycystic kidney disease. (laughs) I mean, it was actually really enjoyable because the music was on and the wind was in our hair and I was feeling all good about myself until we got there and he's like, okay, $80. Oh, that's not cool. That's not cool at all. Okay, Sophia, I hope that the rickshaw taxi is not your freely filtered draft from ASN Kidney. Oh, and Joel, do you want to talk about the big dog that were taken off the board? Josh, why don't you tell us about that? Uh, I think it's pretty clear that in this crowd, we are flozenators to the extreme. And so the EMPA Kidney trial was released and published at the same time at Kidney Week. I think because we have a plan to do that trial in NEPJC in the coming week or two, and we'll have a separate podcast episode devoted to that. It makes more sense to dig into that trial on its own rather than have us spend the next hour all loving on Flosins. Uh, so we're going to take that one off the board for this episode and talk about it extensively next episode. Epikidney, off the board. All right. I really always feel too much pressure with this. Plus, I feel like I'm not the one who's like the most qualified for talk to talk about some of the other ones that are maybe bigger. But... Even though I missed the biggest parts of this talk, I'm kind of excited about anything hepatorenal right now, particularly because terlipressin has been FDA approved. Some of the stuff that I was most interested is some of the new things that we can utilize to help diagnose hepatorenal syndrome and to differentiate between hepatorenal, prerenal azotemia, and ATN. And one thing that I found was really interesting is you can actually get a FENA 
And you might even be able to differentiate between hepatorenal, prerenal, and ATN. I know I see your face, Nan, but there was some data that they presented. Um, and I mean, what it is is hepatorenal is going to have the lowest phena around. Prerenal will too. And then, but ATN also does. But the numbers are. Yeah, I mean, hepatorenal is like a profound prerenal state, right? It's it's uh, e- e- extreme prerenal, like 0.001 or something it's like, like that. like the p-value for empa kidney, 0.00001. It just seems nuts to me to go to kidney week in 2022 and we're talking about phenas to distinguish between disease yeah. entities. I, I totally agree with you. I was like, come on, this is a whole bunch of hooey. But the data that they presented, and it was like small differences in phenas was helpful in differentiating between the two. And, and they also talked about, you know, of course, checking urine albumin to help with ATN. They talked about casts, you know, granular casts to help with ATN, but I'm just going to pull up the numbers. And of course, out, the other thing I wanted to mention was a urine NGAL. And so the FINA for hepatorenal needs to be less than 0.2 with an NGAL less than 220. A FINA for prerenal azotemia less than 0.5%. And then it talked about ATN with an NGAL, urinary NGAL greater than 220. And then the FINA for the ATN also greater than 0.5%. And the data suggests this is something I can think in like 2018, if I can find it. Yeah, but I mean, it it, it makes sense, right? Because uh, uh, there is no tubular injury. It's just a functional kidney failure, a functional kidney injury. So you will, none of the biomarkers should be positive. So it's the absence of biomarkers, which makes, you know, you know, to Nayan's point, we have nothing else. Otherwise, you know, you could argue, you know, you have these fancy biomarkers and stuff, but in hepatorenal, technically, the kidneys are fine. It's just a functional kidney failure. I also do think, though, that there's overlap between hepatorenal syndrome and, and tubular injury, right? I mean, you know, we, we were a site for the terlopressin trial, and we I think we enrolled one patient because with the strict criteria for hepatorenal syndrome, it can be hard to find a pure hepatorenal with nothing else going on. That doesn't mean they don't have hepatorenal. It could be superimposed on other things. There could be multiple things going on at the same right. time. They have, they have hepatorenal uh, physiology going on in the presence of other issues. Yeah. Right, right. The, the one thing about the hepatorenal, I, I didn't go to this talk, but I saw it on Twitter on the yeah. Thursday morning. I don't know who gave the talk, but they were talking about dialyzing people because of hyperaminemia. And we do that too in pure hepatorenal, in, in a you know fulminant hepatic failure and acute liver injury. But he also mentioned it in the case of cirrhosis, advanced cirrhosis, which we don't do. And I feel like that's a very different phenotype. Um, and he kind of glossed over this point, but I'm curious if if you guys went to that or you guys have thoughts on that. So this was a hepatorenal session that you went to? So, on one of the days? so there was a hepatorenal session that I missed because that was the middle of when I was giving a talk, but I did go to a lunch that was, I will say sponsored by Mountcrop, but it was still really interesting. Um, and I thought that it had some experts there. So I think it was worth listening to before I move forward. I did. The one thing I wanted to mention is the big issue that uh, institutions have is that they will measure urine sodium. The, the cutoff will be 20. And they say, if you need to actually catch a pheno this low, you need to have a cutoff of 10 for what you're actually going to be reporting. I'm sorry. What, I don't understand. What did you just say? The, the what, what, lower limit of sensitivity on your urine sodium. Mm-hmm. Oh, if, you're, if your lab only reports down to 20, you can't use this to differentiate between these diseases? Is that your point? Correct. Ooh. My lab does not differentiate below 20. Neither does mine. So the next thing I did want to bring up with all of this is it, when we talked about the, I can't remember the name of the trial, but the Turlopressin trial. Confirm. 
we talked about albumin level and how much albumin someone received put them at increased risk of respiratory failure and death due to respiratory failure. And that was initially why the FDA turned it down. What was interesting is the other talk that I went to, they based it on ACLF grade and stratified it by ACLF grade. And so that's acute, darn it, ACLF. But it has to do with liver failure. And it talks about how many organs have failed. And if you have grade three, that's three or more organs, you actually do very poorly with terlipressin, but it's two or less organs, you do well with terlipressin. So they stratified it that way. And so that was their recommendation on how you were going to determine whether or not somebody should be using terlipressin or not. Okay. Is that your pick? That's my we pick. We all set? So this is a lunch session that you went to sponsored <laughs> by Malincrot. I just want to make sure I get this right. So, I, okay. Okay, cool. Yeah. Cool pick. I always do this. <laughs> I can't help it. <laughs> you just you just picked a kicker in the first round. Okay. Okay. Classic well, we, we count on Sophie to be the, the best the best draft picker. Okay. In the one on one basketball game, uh, and then uh, you were you came in second. Oh wow! I'm only five seven. The rules of drafting is that you always pick the best talent available. This you is don't what draft he always based tells on need. Me too. <laughs> you always draft the draft the best talent available. And I did see Joel hand out a couple autographs while we were there, but he was not the best talent <laughs> at Kidney Week. I'm going with the social media session that was done. Oh, uh, so good. We have so good. Dr. Jennifer Gunter talking about combating misinformation uh, as physicians, which I think is super relevant with everything going on with Twitter and and consternation about that. And I thought she gave a great talk. Also in that session was Adam Rodman talking about podcasts. Uh, He's a phenomenal speaker. And then our very own Sophie talking about visual abstracts, also a phenomenal talk. So as a collection of talent, I'm going with the SoMe session. And that was really good. Like Adam, so all three of them had very different styles. Sophie actually, you know, created a visual abstract live. She picked a couple of interesting visual abstracts to criticize. She showed some of the data, but it was very visual with icons and stuff. Uh, Jen Gunter had, you know, the the appearance of her slides was very much bullet point, but she's such a good speaker and she had such really, really interesting narrative style that I think despite, you know, that style, everyone was glued and, and it was super interesting. And Adam, on the other hand, he's very casual, you know, dressed in a shirt and it's like a hippie standing there uh but you know he's again he wore a shirt i was a little nervous <laughs> <laughs> uh, but it was it was just a it's a brilliant session with very you know dynamic speakers very different style i was uh, and and i and, and again you go to i've heard many social media sessions uh, over the years uh, this did not feel like any of the sessions i've been to it looked very new oh novel yep. information i was so happy not to have a session where like let me give you the anatomy of a tweet I was so happy there was none of that. It was it was good. It was really good. I agree. Excellent session. And uh, yeah, Sophia just knocked it out of the park. Your your visual abstract session was really really good. How long ago was it that uh, Michelle Lim did her visual abstract session? Was that just last year at Kidney Week? I think so. I think so. It was last year or the year before. It was one of the virtual ASNs. The one of the they all kind of then. blur in your head, right? Yeah, and she did a really nice job on that one also. Uh, but I like yours. It was very different style than hers, and it was great. Yeah, boy, talk about the gut rot that I felt up until that. But it went well. And did, did anybody mention that I was homecoming queen? <laughs> <laughs> 
You read? <laughs> I think yeah. you mentioned it multiple times. <laughs> no. I thought it was a little extreme to wear a tiara at the time at the, when you gave your talk, but you know what? You know, you be you. No, it, uh, so that thing took. I had people at work asking me, Joel, after you posted that, if I was. If I got like the NFJC homecoming queen and I was like, yeah, no, they were razzing me every year. (laughs) Okay. Josh, third place, not bad in the one-on-one. What would you have a pick from the draft board? There's a lot still here on the board. I I feel uh, torn at this point. I I think of the stuff on the board. I think I'm going to let swap tear into the committee about the uh, late breaking clinical trial oral selection because I think that's God, where he's I hope he going. I hope he picks up that sort of, yeah. But I think the oral abstract that I thought was really interesting and I did not know much going into, I'd say was the best fluids trial was the use of balanced solutions versus normal saline in kidney transplant. Uh, and so this was a multi-center, double-blinded, randomized controlled clinical trial of normal saline versus LR. They actually showed the bag that just said like study I fluid. Think, study. Oh, sorry. I, did I do it wrong? Yeah, Go ahead. It was... Uh, it was it was plasma light, not plasma. Excuse me, yeah, it was yeah. it was plasma light, not not lightative ringer. Sorry, they showed the bag in the presentation. It just says like study solution on it, and they showed a a statistically and clinically meaningful benefit to using balanced solutions over saline and kidney transplant with a number needed to treat of around ten. So like numbers and of the, patients that. But you got to be very specific. Be very specific about what the outcome was, because that's what yeah, the out- why it lands a punch. The outcome was delayed graft function. So the use of dialysis in the first week after transplant. Use of dialysis. You're avoiding dialysis in a transplant in a post transplant patient. It's so important, right? Yeah. So if you look at the uh, only the only positive trial was uh, Smart uh, and Salted from Vanderbilt. And their positive outcome was driven by kidneys, but it was make, it wasn't dialysis, right? It was kind so of, you know, positive outcome. Yeah, it yeah. was a and surrogate it, it kidney number, outcome. And it had a number needed to treat of 100. Exactly. Mm-hmm. I, I right? think part of a big, big difference in this one. Part of what it seems like drove this trial was the sheer volume of fluids that people use in kidney transplant, like eight ish liters of fluid were given on the average kidney transplant in the study. Um, yeah, and up and to then, twelve. I mean, this was a right. lot Eight of fluid. They got up to four. twelve liters. Yeah, I, and and so there's a ton of fluid here. If there's a difference in one of these fluids, this is the place you're going to see it. And then I think the other thing that was really interesting comparing this trial to the kind of more equivocal fluid wars trials, um, basics being the one that I know the best, but I know that there are other ones that people have strong feelings about. I think in those other trials, there was a lot of saline given prior to randomization that people think washed out the significance of those results. But in the salty D, the smart ICU and the best trials, these are all really randomization at the initiation of beginning fluids. And so you really do see the effect of balanced fluid versus saline. And I really do think this is a practice changer. I think I went into residency thinking, oh, LR and plasma light are surgeon fluids and I'm smart and I use saline because I'm a medicine person. And now we actually have evidence to show that these balanced solutions are probably what we should be reaching for almost always unless we have a really good reason to reach for saline. I'm glad you picked this trial because he, uh, I, I lost him in the first five minutes when he badmouthed chloride, and so I stopped paying attention the rest of the time. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I mean, yeah. apart apart from this, the uh, the things that Josh said, um, the other settings are kind of you know sepsis or what have you. 
this is such a uniquely kidney setting right there is probably some atn that happens in the with a cold ischemia uh, and as you said it's right at the time uh, that the you know right from the beginning that you're giving the solutions and the other trials they had like 1 to 2 liters you know the the conservative the restrictive fluid dogma in sepsis has taken over appropriately so that people hardly give any fluids we start pressers very early as we saw in the classic discussion a few uh, weeks ago so so all these things play into that and and are you worried about you know uh, an ongoing or incoming epidemic of hyponatremia with the with the hypotonic uh, stop, it, stop it don't even go there please <laughs> so swap is 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 reaching from what session was that where that guy the got best up there of, talking about the best of nefjc oh yeah oh and the best of nefjc we'll get to that probably later and there was some heckling from the audience about hyponatremia but one of the things that that is interesting is that he went deep into the hyperkalemia and the potassium data, and there was no difference in potassium. And that's important for two reasons. For one, in my experience, the thing that makes people pull the trigger on delayed graft function is usually hyperkalemia. That's usually the reason you're like, oh, we need to dialyze this patient. And so there was no difference in potassium, which I thought was curious. We'll have to wait for the publication to come out. And then the other one is... In the fluid battle, some people believe that you shouldn't use balanced solutions that have potassium in it in patients that have hyperkalemia. And the counter has been a couple of trials that have looked at this and showed decreased potassium compared to saline with, um, in those cases, lactate ringers. And the argument always was, well, the normal saline causes metabolic acidosis and causes potassium shift, causing, causing hyperkalemia. And those were all post-transplant studies. And here's a definitive one showing no difference in potassium at all. So we can kind of put those articles to bed. They were always they were kind of small series, and they were I always I always thought it was a little a little fishy, but no difference in the potassium in this, but still uh, a number needed to treat of ten to reduce an episode of dialysis. And the indication for dialysis was volume overload for all of them, wasn't it, or for the majority of them? I don't remember. Is that what, is that what the yeah, case was, Sophia? it was volume that was cool. that drove the dialysis. That makes sense because it wasn't. It wasn't was a lot of volume. He was very clear on that. And they also got a ton of yeah, volume. That's volume. fair. Whenever best fluids is published, I think we should do a deep dive on a, on an FJC. I think it's not going to be I soon. Think so too, but it's worthwhile yeah. because we have you know we have discussed split, we discussed uh, basics, we discussed smart and salted. Uh, there was plus that we did not discuss, but there have been so many trials which are all you know negative or you know barely positive that best fluids is completely our population. So we should definitely discuss it whenever it is published. Did he say was was the fact that there was no difference in potassium because they were dialyzed in the more in the normal saline arm? There was no difference in the creatinine, but that was because in the despite the higher dialysis, because you know, despite the with the higher creatinine in the saline arm, they got dialyzed. So the creatinine was same in so That's what I mean. Arms. Could that be the same thing with the potassium? Oh, possibly. Yeah, that's a good point. I, I went up to him afterwards and asked him and, and specifically talked about the potassium stuff. And he didn't mention that. So I don't know. That's a good question. And it'll be interesting to see what the what the results were. I, uh, if, it, if he mentioned that during the presentation, I missed it. It might have been too subtle. And then the last thing I think is that given the the real magnitude of benefit seen in this trial that was really amplified by the amount of fluids given, you wonder if we're really only going to see big differences in fluid effects in big IV fluid administration settings. And so you wonder if maybe DKA is the other place you would see a big fluid difference. I can't think of lots of other things that you start pounding people with this degree of fluids, though. 
It used cholera. to be used to be Definitely pancreatitis, cholera. and that went away. And that's going away too. Yeah. Yeah. Okay, and I'm embarrassed, humiliated to say this, but Swap beat me in one-on-one basketball. Swap, you're up next. <laughs> so, uh, of course, I have to take uh, bad oral uh, versus poster selection. Uh, it's a no-brainer for me. I can talk about this for the next hour, but I will try to be brief. I'll, I'll try. I'll try my best. Um, so what I'm trying There's talking no about? Brief. Yeah, zero percent chance he's going to be brief. <laughs> <laughs> so what I'm talking about is the is the studies that a, the ASN program committee in their wisdom, and you know I think the choice is difficult. They choose for oral versus poster for the late breaking uh, clinical studies, and at the end we can talk about a few choices that they have. But just to give some examples, we had two phase two studies which had surrogate outcomes of albuminuria with less than 100 patients as oral. So these are not practice-changing trials, but they were oral presentations. On the other hand, uh, in the posters, we had several trials which are practice-changing. One of them was STOP-ACE, which was about 500 patients from UK looking at stopping versus continuing RAS blockade in patients with CKD GFR less than 30. It was published in New England Journal of Medicine. So for the simultaneous publication with a poster, poster, right? It was like time to the start of the poster session, which is like the ultimate. Exactly. So so that was somehow missed. Uh, There was another study, which was a secondary analysis of Deliver, which was published in JAMA Cardiology. That was a poster. But there was uh, there was a trial uh, of ARB in COVID called Clarity from Australia, which is about 500 patients. Again, really cool analysis. It is coming out in BMJ. There was a secondary analysis of... What they show of Clarity. I mean, they, we know it doesn't make, matter, right? ACRB, it's sort of a done question perhaps now. Uh, but so what they did is they, these were hospitalized patients with COVID who got telmisartan or placebo. So they, you are getting sick people who are admitted to the hospital. Forget about sick day rules. You are giving them an ARB. And, and it's, so this is a double blind trial. This is a double blind trial, and they did not show a difference in uh, in, in, the, in the mortality was, or the you know uh, they had a kind of and cool is that published. Uh, you said that was simultaneously published in BMJ. It is to be published this week, is what Mick Jardin said. Yeah, it's very close. But it, and, and they did some key, cool Bayesian analysis. Like there are really cool aspects here. Like we don't know. They had no idea of the effect size when they started the trial, as happens in COVID. Uh, so they made up some effect size and they did some Bayesian analysis. So there's a lot of cool elements to the trial from a methods aspect. Uh, but, you know, again, and it conclusively answers the question that you should not give an ARB. I'm, I'm more interested in the sick day stuff, which we'll hopefully see later. There was a secondary analysis of the COMPASS trial, which was uh, rivaroxaban placebo. But, you know, among there was a factorial design where what they did is patients who were not already on a PPI, they were randomized to PPI or placebo. So what Lonnie Pine and, and colleagues from McMaster did is they looked at GFR decline or GFR slope or incidence of CKD in a randomized clinical trial of PPI versus placebo. And I guess none of you w- went around to the, see the late breaking posters, which is why it should have been an OLR. So they did show that incident CKD was higher in the PPI. So incident CKD, of course, described as GFR less than 60 and the GFR slope was faster with the PPI. Uh, it was a small so difference. We're back to this. We are back well, to this. To be fair, like the Perry Wilson's like automated AKI alert yeah. on PPI deprescribing also kind of hit on this, right? Like they successfully got people to reduce the rate of PPI descri- uh, prescribing. And I think that group showed a lower rate of AKI over the course of this study. But I, I don't remember the super but details. That's of that. not randomized data, right? No, it's, yeah, it's, it's, it's yeah, an intervention. So, 
and 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 swap what this was part of a different study it was a it was the compass trial which was i don't uh, remember the, I, the it compass. was not a, it was not a ckd study it was one of those you know uh doac study so it was like hope it was uh doac versus placebo in patients at high cardiovascular risk and it showed that so rivaroxaban what was it? Well, i'm sorry what, what, why was the ppis part of that and they study? had a ppi it was a, they had a factorial design where they also gave ppi or placebo to people who were not already on a PPI with a whatever indication for a PPI. Oh, they just piggybacked on another trial. Yes. So were they were they trying to piggyback on another trial or were they also looking to see if there was increased like GI bleed risk or something and trying to tie that on top of it? Exactly right. Yeah. So so this is there were many other publications from Compass that have already happened. This was a new analysis that but they did. But this is by- truly a randomized controlled trial, PPI versus no PPI. And the outcome was not GFR, but you can still look at GFR in a randomized function. Exactly. So, so that's what oh, took that's time because they tracked down the patients. They looked at the GFR and, you know, ideally for CKD, you need to have two GFRs. They had only one GFR, uh, when they said the GFR is less than 60. So it's not perfect, but it's, it's pretty close to, you know, a high quality data showing, you know, PPIs, uh, perhaps should not be used. Anyway, so there was that. Then there was a hydrochlorothiazide for stones. And that was a big one. Wait, 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 whoa, whoa, whoa. How many studies are you going to do? How many studies are you going to do in your... No, no, I'm not talking about all of them. What I'm saying is there were, there were like 30 <laughs> You kind 30 of are posters. talking about all of them. Right, I'm you saying there were... You already did bad oral presentation and you've also done PPID prescription and now you're going to do no stone? No, no, I'm, I'm just saying oh, there were... come on now. I'm just saying there were 30 posters out of which at least 10 were really high quality that we are all interested in talking about. So they should have been oral. They should have either flipped them some, but I think... I think like other big organizations, especially cardiology, we should have more than one late-breaking session. I totally should agree at least have two. hundred percent. And, and late-breaking shouldn't be counter-programmed with a lot of things. My fellow is like, uh, he was like... Did he, he have a poster his, on his Friday? Po- he had a poster during on Friday during the during the, the late-breaking. You feel bad for these people. I feel bad for... And then there were people that were actually speaking at sessions and we're having sessions. I don't know how many people showed up for those sessions, but it's like tough to go up against Empikidney, right? Yeah. I mean, I mean, you could, you could have a basic science session perhaps, uh, though you could argue both ways, right? Like the plenaries are often basic science and I have to attend them and I enjoy them because, you know, otherwise I would never go to these kind of basic science sessions. So, I wouldn't uh, know because I missed all the plenary <laughs> sessions. So. Yeah, second that That's one. nothing to be proud of, man. <laughs> <laughs> but, but I mean, you could do it that way, right? Rather than posters, you could have some clinical practice sessions or whatever. Maybe you could have a dialysis late-breaking session and have some AKI clinical practice sessions. What, there, are, there are different ways of doing it. And I, and I wonder, I mean, or, I'm sure. Or, or you can have an afternoon plenary that's not counter-programmed with anything else. Yes. And everybody's supposed to go to this and you do this a couple of days. And you get more late-breaking trials. What, what do you think about uh, Sunday? Because, you know, I feel bad for the people who are presenting on Sunday. There is some really good stuff that's presented and the halls are empty. So maybe you should put a late-breaking on Sunday and force people to stay or or cut out Sunday completely, either of the two. You know that the ASN committee sits and they debate like this about what they should be doing as well. Is anybody here on the program committee or has anybody no. been on the program committee? No. Nobody in this room. How many people from the program committee listen to this podcast? Yeah, not probably some. <laughs> no, I, not, I, I, think, I think some of them do. Gone to the social media session. We know that there are twelve thousand people who listen to who are subscribed to us, and we know that there are not twelve thousand nephrologists in the country. So you would imagine that some of them are listening. And I think the program committee changes, right? They don't. Yeah. They don't have the same people every year. Yeah. So, 
but I think we're still in this model of kidney week where we're not expecting lots of positive clinically changing trials because we're used to every trial of kidney week being a negative. And the good news is they're not anymore. And the upside of that is probably that we need to have two late breaking oral sessions so we can get some of these really important results out. I, I agree with stop, with SWAP, especially the, uh, the stop ACE trial really should have been prime time but not not just stop ace no stone is a hugely practice changing potentially practice watch it practice changing yeah yeah you guys all had your picks i'm waiting for my first round pick okay no no so so, i mean maybe you should be better at basketball or maybe you should just cut Cut the mic no so no stone was (laughs) negative but you know there is there is so much to delve into as to why it was not negative right i love giving thiazides so it was worth bigger discussion than you know that poster. Yeah, you can talk about it in a moment if you be quiet. <laughs> <laughs> okay, as the worst basketball player in the room, I get to go, and I have some old school nephrology picks. And by old school, I mean big trials that I thought for sure were going to be positive, but were negative. And I've got three of them. Things that I was teaching my fellows as fact and were not fact. Okay. So the first one of those is no stone, which was a randomized controlled trial of thiazide diuretics versus placebo at, I believe it was three different doses. I think it was placebo 25, 50, and 100 milligrams a day in patients that were confirmed stone formers. And there was no difference in time to next stone. And they did 24-hour urines, and they confirmed that they had lower urine calcium, right? So it's not like the patients weren't taking the pill. They were getting the biologic effect that we estimate and we expect people to get with thiazides. And the first thing I said when I saw, when I saw this, this poster, I was like, uh, oh, why don't you, you use endapamide or chlorothaladone? And he had an explanation. I'll talk about that in a moment. But my favorite was like three other people came up to the poster while I was talking about it. They all asked, hey, why don't you use endapamidoclothalidone? I think this guy had this question a hundred times in his morning that he was presenting the poster. Uh, and his argument was that most of the data on thiazides is actually with hydrochlorothiazide. That is, there's been, a, he said there was 11 uh, randomized controlled trials. He said two other ones had also been negative and all of them had been relatively low quality. And this looked like a pretty good note, a uh, pretty good study. I'm going to wait for this to be published. He's having a hard time getting it published because he's breaking some dogma. It wasn't just hydrochlorothiazide was ineffective. I thought there was a significant increase in adverse events in the hypokalemia and the um, hydrochlorothiazide group. Well, I mean, we get, we know we have adverse events with these drugs. These drugs are, these drugs have caused real side effects. He, it was diabetes was one of them. Hypokalemia and, and arthritis or um, a gout. And, yeah, yeah, yeah. gout. Yeah. yeah, that's, no, that's, yeah. that's exactly right. And, so um, Sophie goes next, right? Oh, you're not done? <laughs> <laughs> I think he was gonna. I think he was gonna do three right swap. He's got three on the. Three in one. Negative trials that I wanted to go over. Swap. So, uh, you had some thoughts on this on this trial. The no stone. Uh, I don't know. Again, it's it's something that we need to really um, read and find out. I, I have too much of yeah. a bias. You know, I like using thiazides. We know they reduce calcium in the urine, so they have to work. Uh, so uh, I'm not sure well, why they did not work. He, he looked at the 24-hour urines. He said that the urine citrate went down quite a bit, which is also weird because usually when they get metabolic alkalosis, their urine citrate goes 
but but from that aspect this is a good trial right maybe maybe we shouldn't be th- doing thai z alone maybe if you're doing thai z then you have to have a alkali supplement or something yeah so, so yeah. It's, it, that that will be maybe practice changing potassium citrate would be perfect treat the hypokalemia and give some additional citrate but yeah no it was super interesting and i think it really emphasizes and I, you know, I don't want to, I don't want to pick too much on the stone guys, but they have been super reliant on just those urine chemistries and those super saturations. And I think they've been, a, there's been a paucity of RCTs in real clinical data, real world clinical data. I might, I might be wrong on that, and I might be insulting a bunch of people who have a ton of real world clinical data. But this was a shocker to me, and it looked like a good, it looked like a good trial with extensive follow up. So that was one that I think totally dog was shrugging. The other one that I was always teaching my fellows about was the uh, was the cold dialysate. That there were some ro- some small randomized controlled trials, mainly looking at cardiac stunning and white matter preservation with cold dialysate versus warm dialysate. And there was a, a massive, well done clinical trial out of Ontario. I think it was just Ontario. Yeah, it was a cluster and- RCT. All of all, I think almost all patients in Ontario. Yeah, almost every, that's right. Almost every patient in Ontario was randomized because they were, they were randomizing whole dialysis units. That was a unit of randomization to either 36.5 degrees, which was the warm one, or half a degree below their temp when they entered the dialysis unit. So mm-hmm. they would measure the temp, figure out the patient's temp, and drop it a half degree below that, which was significantly cooler, 0.6 degrees colder than the 36.5. And they were looking for, it was a, what? Cardiovascular outcomes, right? Cardiovascular outcomes, no difference at and all. And there was nothing. Yeah. There was no cardiovascular improvement. There was no blood pressure improvement. There was no reduction in hypotension. And there was a lot more improved, a lot more patient discomfort. People were yeah. unhappy. They hated it. They basically said they hated it. Yeah. yeah. But I didn't interpret this as like a, a true negative trial. I mean, it was in some sense, but it's like basically saying for all comers, they come into the dialysis unit, maybe putting them on a half a degree lower or 36.5 isn't going to do them any good. It doesn't mean that if they're having problems with hypotension that you shouldn't be dropping their temperature down among all the all other things. Exactly right you nailed it. So that's I think I think this is going to be a problem with all these pragmatic trials. We have discussed them on FGC on NEF trials is that the population becomes very heterogeneous and not really the high risk population. You're doing it to everyone. Uh, and is that really the right population? Maybe, you know, the patient, again, maybe this is because of our bias, as we did with hydrochlorothiazide. We think this works. We have seen it work in, in, in decreasing intradilatory hypertension. Isolated examples. But the argument that I was giving to the fellows was this data on um, this white matter changes. They were MRIs that were being done. They were showing, and the idea was just like we have cardiac stunning during dialysis, we were getting these essentially, I, which I pr- interpreted the data as microinfarcts in the brain causing this kind of dialysis-associated dementia. And I've seen this in patients that have been on dialysis for a few years, and you can just see their mental acuity mm-hmm. go down over time, and it's just devastating to watch. Mm-hmm. This is the whole I always, hypoperfusion, middle cerebral artery stuff. Yeah, right? I mean, that was the theory that I that I was teaching to my fellows. That data came from the same institution from, from Western Ontario, where Amit Garg is from, the PI of this trial. So yeah, it, was, it, was, it was so... Again, something I've been teaching my fellows, something that I thought was, this is right, failed pretty dramatically in this trial. And I will... Did, did he talk about the difference in volume removal or weights or anything? Because one of the reasons we do this is they have issues with ultrafiltration, right? They talked about blood pressure as well. 
uh, but yeah, the blood pressure was not pressure, no it was an incidence yeah. of intradilatic hypotension it was just blood pressures um, yeah. but again it was it is published in lancet uh, late you know simultaneously so it's yeah, this, is an oral, this is an oral presentation i will i will end my my draft at this point um, though i have others two out of three okay so yeah you're, you're done with two, two drafts two out of three. i will okay Okay. <laughs> <laughs> okay, we're going to snake it back. Swap, you got your you're on the clock. All right. So, uh, I will talk about the best of the NFJC session. Uh so oh, for the so first good. time ever, you know like a few years ago in ASN started doing this best of ASN journals where CJ and Jason would do it. So something along the same lines uh we were able to pitch this to ASN to do a best of NFJC session and and uh, i think it was so wonderful i hope we get invited back again to do it for the next 10 years uh, or or longer so what we had is we set it up as uh, best of hypertension literature which was jay teekel uh, best of aki literature which is perry wilson best of dialysis which is graham abra and uh, best of basic science which was supposed to be kelly handeman but she couldn't be here and caitlin flashart who was a moderator he she stepped up to describe that and the cool thing without going into each talk in detail is that it was unlike any other talk at asn uh it was very much you know bringing the social media aspect into the talks so for example jade had these visual abstracts and, and she had the tweet discussions to highlight uh, uh what um, Uh, Graham Abra did for example he had the peritonitis where he uh, went to the draft picks and he chose that to highlight uh, from the podcast uh, and he actually showed you know each of our draft picks uh, and similarly uh, Perry Wilson he he went to the uh, top tweets uh, and brought them up and and he got some of the tweets from the uh, authors and stuff like that so the the talks were so different compared to you know bullet points and you know this uh, uh, graph and so on and so forth and and even Caitlin so she got you know she explained the cool stuff about the PKD trial uh, and the fact that we are going to do more basic science research going forwards so the the presentation was really really well done uh, we had a really good attendance and lastly it was like getting an overview of the best of nephrology science published in the last one year. so it's not just you weren't restricted to you know papers from cj sun or jason you know and their great journals nothing against them but you could you know pick the best of you know any gm lancet jci whatever it was right and 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 present that in that two hours it was a phenomenal uh, session i really enjoyed it i'm biased but i really enjoyed it and they were it really well put together they were they were beautiful presentations they were well done they were well spoken you really couldn't have asked for much more they did such a great job they knocked it out of the park I, I truly thought it was one of the best sessions I saw at the entire kidney week. Is this a, a good time for we, like bringing up the people that come up to the stage to ask questions and to like become make it like their own diatribe? Like there was that guy on hyponatremia. There was a guy at the late breaking who was like oh, literally yeah. nitpicking yeah. everybody's talks and their methods. And you're like, is this the time for that? I mean, literally, like I, you know, I think he thought he was giving them good advice, but yeah, I think timing. I think his name was Reviewer Two. <laughs> <laughs> some of these people they just don't let the mic go right ask and walk away they they just keep there you know nagging and haranguing the the speaker yeah it was it was pretty embarrassing at the late breaking oral and, and i tweeted about you know the the new yorker cartoon which is you know uh, the it's a it's a famous one where we say hey we now open the floor to questions in the form of you know lectures and comments 
and and the uh, there's a flow chart that uh, Edgar always posts from Simon Carly yeah. in Manchester. I posted that, and so many people liked it. They came up to me and said, "It's really good. You did posted that because we were all so sick of this guy." I mean, I can tell you, I had more than twenty people come and approach me and say, "Yes." You know, it, that's was, one person approaching you is like ten likes on Twitter. It's very much more significant. <laughs> <laughs> okay, uh, swap. That was a great pick. That was a great pick, Josh. You're on the clock. I'm going to pick something because I think it's good. Because I think no one else is going to pick it, and also because I have total conflict of interest with it. Uh, and that's going to be the future of nephrology task force report that we presented on Thursday. Um, so full disclosure, I am a member of the Future of Nephrology Task Force, uh, along with people that most of you all know, including Samira Farouk. Um, and that was a task force chaired by Mark Rosenberg at the request of ASN Council. Um, this was kicked off by a request from ABIM and ACGME, the board certification people that we all know and love, um, to help reevaluate whether we should continue to include kidney biopsies and temporary vascaths as requirements for board certification in nephrology. Uh, and really, ASN asked for an opportunity to review all aspects of fellow training to figure out what's core to nephrology, what's important to nephrology as we go forward in the next 10, 15 years, um, and are these procedures critical to that or, or what things are missing from current nephrology training. Um, so we published a draft report a couple of weeks ago. We got some great feedback from the community uh, and published a final report at Kidney Week that's now available at asnonline.org slash futureofnephrology so everyone can read it. Um, and, and there are 10 recommendations there. I'm not going to read them all, but I think the key ones to talk about are really emphasizing competency-based education, really focusing on developing individualized career paths for fellows so they get deeper training in specific areas, whether that's GN or transplant or onconef or whatever that is, really clarifying what it means to be a competent expert in that area. Um, and then really identifying the gaps in training as we train fellows now, particularly home dialysis and management of transplant patients that I think are going to be more part of our practice as we go forward and that we probably don't emphasize enough in the first year. So, Josh, I have a question about that. So, you're saying, you know, deeper training in something like onconephrology, right? Mm -hmm. But so, that's not easy, I think, for a program to put together a onconephrology specialty. Now, you have how many fellows a year come in wanting to do that? So, if you get one fellow every four or five years that wants to do it, that's a lot of work for a program to put something together yeah. that may only get utilized, you know, 10%, so, 20% of the time. So the idea here was really figure out what things every nephrologist needs to know. So that's that baseline core competency for everyone. And we think that it should include more home dialysis, more transplant management, these higher level competencies that may only really be available at specialized centers should be defined as like a clear area of expertise and a track and a place that does it really well. So it may make sense to do onconephrology at Sloan Kettering, and it may not make sense to do onconephrology someplace to be named that I won't name because I don't want to get myself in trouble. But places that are smaller or don't have those kind of resources can make arrangements with those centers that are real expert at it for the one fellow every five years who wants to learn it, that they can go there learn that skill, develop that competency, and bring it to part of their practice going forward in the future. 
the last part of this that I just want to, the last two things I want to hit on. Number one, the procedure stuff that got us onto this pathway. I think as a, as a task force, we really agreed pretty quickly that these procedures probably don't need to be required for fellows when they graduate because so few people are doing them now. And honestly, right now, we're pretending that people are competent to do these procedures and they're really not. A quarter of graduating fellows don't feel confident doing these procedures at graduation. And that's only judging by their own self-perceived competence. And then in practice, 80% plus of practicing nephrologists haven't done five biopsies or five catheters in the last year. And it really comes down to patient safety. Is that something we would want our patients to go through with a person that unpracticed in that procedure? I'm curious what your discussion was on ultrasound, because everywhere I turned around at ASN, Abhilash was giving a, a, a talk on POCUS. And that's the number one question we get asked by applicants is about a, a POCUS curriculum. And I think POCUS is way more important than, than, than you know, this kidney biopsy, catheter, whatever. We have had those de- debates forever. I think institutions do what culturally, you know, if you are in private practice like Joel, you don't have time to do biopsies and you got really IR support to do biopsies or whatever it is, right? Uh, and, and, and you and me debating in ivory towers will have no difference. Joel will not listen to us. Mm-hmm. But POCUS is something that's really relevant to all of us. We should, we should be learning. I want to learn POCUS. So I, I think this is a really important question. And Avalash and I had a long back and forth on Twitter. We can link to too when, when we solicited feedback. Clearly, he is Mr. Nephro P, uh, so, or Dr. Nephro P. And so, had lots of strong feelings on this. And, and I think that this is a skill that we need to learn better as a field. But honestly, right now, as a nephrology faculty across the country, we don't have enough experts to teach this skill such that we can expect graduating fellows to know how to do it. So I think until we have the skill set to say we're competent to bring you up to a competency level, it's it's a farce for us to say that we can train you there. So, but what I think, and I think this has been strong with, is if you make it a requirement, it's going to force people to update their faculty. Right. That's the thing that you need to do. Well, and the thing is, even if you don't make it a requirement, the audience is going to dictate what happens, right? If that's what people want, they're going to seek out programs that have that in place. And so I think that's, we as a task force did not want to make a new requirement that was going to be the new biopsy where every program director signs off and says, yep, all my fellows can do POCUS, but in fact, they can't. We'd rather have fellows who are truly expert in POCUS get out there, teach us how to do this skill and help us make that a requirement everywhere else. But right now we just don't have the base of expertise we need to make that a requirement nationally. Sophie, any thoughts? Nope. That's why we have on the podcast. (laughs) That's the insight we were looking for. Um, The last... We, that was mostly time that we spent on the on the first five recommendations of the panel. The last five are also important. Those are really focused on well-being of nephrology fellows, health equity, and health justice. Um, and then trying to make sure we have equal opportunities for folks who are DOs or IMGs as well. Uh, and making sure we help get more visa opportunities for folks to stay in the country so they can practice as nephrologists after they finish training here. So I would, really would encourage folks to read the report um, and give us more feedback and help us make this part of the future of nephrology. And, and Michelle Josephson said that this was one of her priorities going forward to, to help them implement these recommendations in the coming year. I do have a thought now, now that you brought up the DO thing, since I am trained DO, um, I can just mention that that is something that I think we're not talking about 
well, I'll be talking about DOs only, but I, I still feel the discrimination amongst my, not all of my colleagues, but you know, I go into um, the fellowship ranking and I am literally getting straight offended and th- throughout the entire thing, because it's, there's a lot of derogatory terminology utilized against DOs while I'm there. And I'm not the only DO within the program. And, and, you know, there are the, I would say that the, the, you know, the program director is actually not doing that, but there are some older individuals that do that, which probably don't even realize that they're doing it. But I I think that that is a trend throughout and it's going to take time to change it. And look, I get it. I know what the, I know what the, what people say about Dr. Dr. Bosteopathy. I mean, I certainly said it even when I was going into it. So I get it, but I, I do think that things are changing. And I think that that they recently just started a, an ASN uh, group for DOs just to try and build up the people that are coming in and, and, and create a forum for that. But the degree of... Sophia, dis- did you... Go ahead. Did you go to a, an ABIM residency or a uh, DO residency? Uh, ABIM. It, so you, okay, so you went from DO to ABIM mm-hmm. or... Okay. And, and I guess my next question is when when you see them, them in the ranking room, are they differentiating that difference? They are sometimes. I would say to some degree, yes. So there is a spectrum of the tiny DO programs. And then there's a spectrum of DO and, you know, what med- medical school they came from. And then there's there. And then there are those individuals who do come beyond that, that, you know, have sort of risen above the ranks no matter what and trained at a really great program and did all these other things and it doesn't really matter. You know? Hassan Minaj really stoked the fire on the DOMD yeah. debate. I don't know if you guys remember that. I only watched mm, a, like a tiny bit of that and then I was like, oh, I can't watch it. And th- apparently he redeemed himself, but it doesn't sound like he actually redeemed himself. I'm sorry. Well, I don't know what anything is. What are you talking about? So, so Hassan Minaj is a pretty prominent comedian has, you know, Netflix shows and whatnot, uh, went on, I think it was Jimmy Fallon, or maybe it was just a stand up or something went on talking about how, um, you know, basically he, he compared DOs to RC Cola and MDs to Coca-Cola and was saying how DOs Ooh. couldn't afford the good letters and told this whole story of him and maybe his cousin or something being a DO and dealing for, you know, just, just all this disparaging things about DO. And he got so much backlash from this and then appropriately kind of, you know, backtracked and clarified comments and whatnot. But that, that created a huge response on social media. Yeah. These attitudes are like, these are antiquated, really antiquated, but ingrained in a lot of parts of the medical culture. And so we're trying to call them out in the report. And I think especially as a, as a subspecialty like ours that has had, you know, challenges recruiting people over the last decade or so. I think we are not in a place to turn our noses up at at high quality candidates who just are getting discriminated against because of the letters after their name or because of the country they started out in. And so I think we do owe it to make a better, fairer system and so that we can get great talent in nephrology because if other specialties are dumb enough to keep passing these people up, we should totally capitalize on that. That's right. So it's like playing money ball. We're going to get people that are the, you know. Great pick, Josh. Nine, what do you got? I'm going to lump two together on this draft board. I'm going to take that. Yeah. Everyone else took. <laughs> I feel left out here. I'm going to do all cardiorenal talks falling flat because. Mm. 
Yeah, they were it, bad. It was pretty bad, and I, I yeah, it's, it was. It's, hurts me to say that all the ones i went to were could have been a lot better left a lot to be desired and so we'll get to that but i do want to put a plug in for during one of the talks transform hf was presented this was also simultaneously presented at aha and i'm guilty of uh, vehemently defending torsamide as a superior diuretic to furosemide and i might have to eat my words here. So this was a randomized control trial of uh, acute decomposite heart failure patients who were upon discharge randomized to furosemide or torsemide. Was that BID furosemide or once a day torsemide? Is that what it was? I don't know for sure based on how it was presented. All the prior studies have been once a day furosemide. I can tell you the furosemide equivalents were the same between the two, but that's the only thing that was presented and it's not published yet. But there was no difference in mortality or hospitalization between those two. Shocking, shocking, yeah. shocking. Another thing that I've been teaching my fellows that I'll have to. I do think if you if you think about though, you know, whether the twice daily or once daily is carried forward in a controlled trial, that's, you know, that's a problem. If they're getting frequent follow-up, it's a lot easier than for them to stay on their medications. So, you know, one being a once daily and the other one often being a twice daily, perhaps that's where we might see a difference in the long term if it weren't a well-controlled trial. I would also draw attention to the to the secondary outcomes. So and I, I feel like Swap has already given me daggers through the through the computer here. But even though it did not reach significance, there was a trend toward decreased rates of all cause mortality and hospitalization in the torsomide group over the compared to the furosemide group. And so, because that's my bias going in, I probably will not switch all my torsamide patients to furosamide. What were the numbers in this? There was about 2,800 patients okay, or so. This is a VA it's trial, a cardiology, right? yeah. yeah, large cardiology okay. trial. Yeah, I mean, I, I like the result because we don't have torsamide in Canada. So, uh, you know, <laughs> I've been, I've been jealous and I've been looking at, you know, all you guys, you know, cool kids on Twitter talk about torsamide and I'm like, what is torsamide? Uh, okay, so, you, you, so you guys, you guys use mercury, is that right? <laughs> so, so I've been, I've been jealous, but I kind of wonder again, right? With some of these trials, is that uh, the again we're not talking about that trial, but the diuretic comparison project, which was hydrochlorothiazide at chlorothalidone at HA, was also negative. You so kind of, yeah. I want, I want to read all these papers before. Uh, so I agree, Josh. There may be something there. We need to read these papers. They're disappointing yeah. results for sure, though. Disappointing results, absolutely. Is that what you got? Now? Do you want to say anything else about the HRS trial? You, you, the, want, to I mean, the, the you want to pick a third? You want to pick a third third thing to lump into this pick? No, no. Let me ask Nan. So, how would you have done the trial? What was was it the content or was it the speakers? I, I think there were a bunch of old speakers with unchanged slides. It was unchanged slides. I went to one where, and I, I this is not meant to call people out, so I won't even say who gave the talk. But you know, you're you're presenting diuretic algorithms that don't include things like acetazolamide, SGLT2, but they have renally dosed dopamine. And this was in two different talks, <laughs> and and it's it's hard to listen to this stuff. And I wonder if people are just recycling slides. And you, it's it's so um, it was I was disappointed. Yeah, I had a similar experience in a cardiorenal session I thought was pretty bad. Yeah, I would definitely. So I, uh, Nan and I were debating about what to go to. And I was like, well, I think I might go do that resistant hypertension one. And then he starts talking smack about it. He was going to go to the cardiorenal one. And then I see him over there live tweeting the resistant, resistant hypertension stuff. And he never went to the cardiorenal one, which apparently lost sound at some point. Well, to be fair, I, got, I, I wasn't let in because it was full. 
Which, which tell you wisdom yeah. of crowd. They had pictures that, of him at the front that said, don't let Captain Claw yeah, that was pretty much it. <laughs> yeah. That's right. Don't let him in. He's going to be very critical. We can go, <laughs> he can go to resistant <laughs> hypertension. That'd be good for him. <laughs> okay, you're up, Sophia. You're on the clock. All right. So there's still a lot of good ones to pick from, but I'll uh, stay with my MO and pick one that's not top form, or maybe it is nowadays since I'm now on my number two or... Anyways, I want to bring up Pocus, but more specifically, and of course, this is Avalash, but more specifically, the Vexus. He did a phenomenal talk where, and by the way, his visuals were second to none, but he did a phenomenal talk and he was talking about with Vexus, you look at hepatic vein, portal vein, and intrarenal um, waveforms. And um, it's specifically about trying to figure out somebody's intravascular status, right? And so he took us through a live patient and had each of these and then showed them that person getting volume resuscitated. And even when you think they're volume resuscitated, he showed each of this patient's you know, actual waveforms and then resuscitated them further. And then their next waveform and resuscitated them further. So we first did a tutorial of like what to expect based on like degree of volume depletion. And then um, was able to then volume replete them. And de- and this is somebody who had heart failure and was able to demonstrate how that changed. And it matched completely exactly what, like what he was trying to demonstrate to us. It was really phenomenal. So I think, you know, beyond POCUS, POCUS is cool. And I think it's helpful. But if we really want to be able to do it right, we need to be able to understand these VEXIS concepts and be able to apply them. Although I think, you know, I, uh, t- to be fair, we use Vexus. I like Vexus. I think, mm-hmm. it's, I think, and, and Abilash and these other POCUS guys are, are super into it. I think we have to at least acknowledge that there's very little data to support it right now, right? So sure. you kind of have to tread with a little bit of caution if you're using that as your sole determinant for clinical care at this point. At least that's how I feel until there's more info. Absolutely. I mean, even, I mean, I'll get a lot of people spouting a lot off to me. And if they look like they need more volume or the opposite, oftentimes I'm going to say, okay, I don't quite believe the data that you're giving me. At the same time, this is, in my mind, really impressive what they're doing. And I'm excited to see where they go with it. Okay. That has everybody's done two rounds. I think that's enough. Are we good with that? Mm-hmm. Yeah. I do want to, yeah. I do want to call out one pretty cool moment on the very last day of the session. They, it's the um, passing of the gavel from one president to another president. And we had uh, Sue Quaggan, who kicked off the ASN Kidney Week with a barn burner of a presidential speech, passing the gavel to Michelle Josephson. And I don't think we've ever had a woman-to-woman passing of the of the torch. And next year, Michelle's going to pass it off to... Deidre Cruz. Deidre Cruz. It'll be a woman-to-woman-to-woman passing. So uh, clearly... Women in charge of ASN going forward, currently and going forward. So pretty cool moment. I thought that was neat. Thank you guys for joining us. This was a good one. I thought ASN Kitty Week was awesome, even if even it if is, the high. It was a lot of fun. That's fun. Yeah, it was yeah. Despite, fun. despite Orlando, except for the Orlando despite part. Despite Orlando, we should we should just point out that the Hyatt bar running out of scotch on the Wednesday should be enough never to go back to Orlando. So if there That's are right. ASN folks listening. They should know that. That's right. Come on. It's running out of scotch. Next year <laughs> in Edinburgh. Right. During a no-hitter. Ne- That's next right. Year in Philadelphia. That right? was during the no-hitter. Well, yeah, right? but if we go to no Edinburgh, one. they're guaranteed not to run out of scotch, right? <laughs> it is the American Society of Nephrology. <laughs> <laughs>